first thing that's happening is that I'm crying every night <laughs> because I am so, I'm, I was so excited. I, I'm not, the, I'm the type of person, I say yes, and then I figure it out. So that's how you get to 12 clients by yourself. I'm like, I'm just gonna figure it out. And I was working really hard, managing the kids, and it was a lot. I loved it, there was so much energy, and I saw, I saw that like, I gotta do this, but I was I was actually scared at that point. Like, I only knew what I knew how to do, which was pitch media. I didn't know how to run an agency. I didn't know how to hire. I didn't know, I didn't know. My husband at night said, Rosie, you have got to scale this. You need to do this. And I'm like, I can't do this. I can't. He said to me, you can. He said, imagine this scenario. And I, I you know, with the kids, I'm working out. He's like, imagine this scenario. You wake up in the morning, get the kids off the of school. You go to the gym, you do your workout, you get in your car, you drive to the city, you walk in with your Starbucks and you've got six people working there. I'm like, Dan, that will never happen. I can't do that. He's like, guess what? It happens, and how did that happen? So he he believed in me. He said he's like you're, you're you can't sustain this. this. This is not a way to live. You gotta scale. Welcome to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. Our guest today is a third-generation female entrepreneur. Gregarious by nature, nurtured by her entrepreneurial parents, she confirmed her calling when high school C's turned into university A's in public relations courses. Rosie Matteo took the initiative to step up when her boss moved on, to step out on her own to support family moves, to step into being a mother of four. She stepped up when her husband's startup needed her expertise stepping into the unknown of the nascent legal cannabis industry, stepping past limiting beliefs of, I can't, and is stepping up to lead the preeminent public relations firm in cannabis. Please enjoy the inspirational founder's journey of Rosie Matteo of Matteo Communications. So I have been doing uh, cannabis PR for six years in the space. So in 2014, when I took on my first project, I identified two problems. One off the bat was that I came from a mainstream background. I had never up to cannabis company, right? And my first project was a cookbook, a cannabis cookbook. And they came to me not because I had cannabis background, because there were so few people doing cannabis PR in 2014, but because my background in PR had been in specialty food and tech. So I did the launch of this crowdfunding campaign. And when Fast Company, Mashable, the New York Times, all outlets that generally, it's very hard to get a place in them, no matter how good you are, all jumped the opportunity to write this story. So I identified this problem that people were not pitching mainstream media what was happening in the cannabis industry. So all these companies wanted press, but they weren't going to people that had really wide audiences. So the PR market wasn't the PR agency market wasn't serving this industry. No, and if they were, they were just focused on cannabis companies and cannabis publications, and there weren't that many there anyway. But you know, your targets were MJ Biz Daily, which still is an amazing publication, or an MG, or or any of the other cannabis endemic media. But nobody was approaching the mainstream media in this industry that was about to blow up. I saw because I was living in Seattle at the time. 
that was one problem that I saw that nobody was approaching it from that way. And then as I got into the space and after that project and I started taking on more cannabis companies, the value of PR in cannabis is, is even higher value than any other industry. And I'll tell you why. Because even today, six years later, it is almost impossible to pay for a cannabis post on a mainstream platform. If I have a sneaker company, I can go to Google AdWords and I can buy cutest sneakers in New Jersey. I cannot go to Google AdWords and say best weed in New Jersey that they will not allow that. They will throw that out. One, Facebook, same thing. Six years later, there is still a shadow ban. So I cannot boost the post like I would for my cute sneakers on Facebook or Instagram. So that is a major problem that we are still solving today. So those are the two. Uh, one is like why our agency set itself apart because we mm-hmm. took a mainstream approach, pitching mainstream media and the industry as a whole in cannabis has grown in popularity because it is one of the only marketing tactics cannabis companies have at their hands. Wow. Wow. So you saw those two opportunities and and that's why you dived into this place and just the unique nature of the cannabis industry. People were staying away from it. People were staying away from it. And even like former bosses and colleagues of mine, I, I saw six years is, is a pretty long time in the space. And I was actually, I thought it was really cool. I thought it was really fun. I was very proud of it. So I started posting about it on my Facebook, oh, my new client, this, that, and the other. I bump into colleagues our old employers to be like, oh, it's so cute. You're working in the cannabis industry. It's like so funny. And I'm like, hilarious. It's my business. Now they're starting to get into the space, the ones that can. So it's, it's very interesting to see this like unfold. And you guys, I mean, you guys have really turned it into, Maddie is the, I mean, the preeminent one in the space. I mean, I work with you guys a lot for, for booking guests, but like you guys are out there. You guys have a lot of very entrenched, um, um, the, the high level brands and, and companies within, within the space, you yeah. guys are representing a lot of them. You and, um, and that's also one of the things that has set us apart. So like I said, it started six years ago. It was really me alone in my home office and all my home office today, because we're still a little COVID and we're only office part of the time, but it was just me by myself. Now, as you know, six years later, we are a team of 32. We have 55 cannabis companies as our clients. So things have really evolved and we have become this preeminent agency because there are also a lot of nuances in the cannabis space. You have to understand like how to pitch media, um, different states and different regulations and really becoming an expert in cannabis. It's not so easy for a new firm to pop into the space. And we see that because we'll partner with like quote unquote mainstream agencies and a lot of times they just don't get it because they haven't they been doing it, so it. Yeah. There's a lot of those nuances. That's why this is so vertical specific, uh, this industry versus, versus anything else. So, well, nobody ever starts out as a kid being like, I want to run the preeminent PR company in cannabis. You know, that evolves over time. So with all the guests that we have on the show, I always want to roll it back and talk about your early life. Uh, I, I knew that you were raised in the Bronx, but tell me about your family. Tell me about your upbringing. Yeah, so my upbringing um, has a lot to do with where I am today. Um, first of all, as you can tell, I'm pretty outgoing, gregarious person. And even from a young age, my dad told me you should be a publicist before he even knew what that was. He thought I should go maybe in fundraising development, but really out there like in a sales position. So even at a young age, it was planted in my mind that this is going to be my career. Very close with my parents. So my dad's advice always... Uh, sticks with me. And I ended up going to BU and studying Boston University and studying communications of so PR, like really from an early age or something that I had a passion. Even in high school, we had like a work study program. I interned 
at a PR agency in the city that was called Harrison and Schriftman. And it was in this heyday of the PR girl. And I just was hooked. I thought it was so glamorous. Now I know it's not so glamorous. It's really hard work, but you know, that was really, but also I come from a long line of actually women entrepreneurs, which is pretty rare. I'm not that old. I'm almost 40, but my mother worked for her grand, worked with her mother who worked with their father in a family business. What was the business? So they had a silk flower business. So they worked for the fashion industry in the garment district. So if you like uh, looked at St. John or Chanel, these flowers, that, that's the type of thing my parents, my mother did. And even um, the show Sex in the City, Sarah Jessica Parker always wore like a big flower. Those are my mother's. Oh, wow. So I grew up going to my mom's office, going with my grandmother to the office. So women working is just part of my DNA. Um, I never thought twice about, you know, having my own business. That being said, if you would ask me, seven, eight years ago. I'm a mother of four. I got married, you know, pretty young. Um, but I have my own cannabis PR agency. Like that was definitely not the trajectory. I thought I was going to go down, but here we are. But was that instilled in you as a, I mean, obviously just beyond just the fact that it was there, you know, it kind of seeps into, to you as a, as a kid. And, and my dad was an entrepreneur as well, but like, was that sense of empowerment, a sense of you can, like, you don't need to ask for permission, like just go for it instilled from your grandmother yeah. and your mother even. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate that I grew up in, in exact house was saying like, there was, there was nothing. I did not fear anything except for failure. Right. So like my parents gave me the confidence to say, you can do anything. And, and that's like something that I even, I, I'm a bit, I, there's nothing I won't try. I feel yeah. like I can do anything and I fail with a lot of things too. Trust me. But like, which you have, I, to. I like to try things. Just having this fearlessness um, has, has served me a long way. And even if you think about cannabis six years ago, when I started, my husband worked in finance mm -hmm. and a pretty, um, you know, buttoned up industry. And we moved out to Seattle and that is when I started the cannabis practice. And like I said earlier, like I started posting on Facebook, like, look at my new cannabis client. And he would say to me, Rosie, like, you know, maybe you don't want to talk about your mom. You don't want to talk about the weed. And I was like, dude, this is what I'm doing. So I'm just going to talk about it. Like, yeah. and you know, so I feel fortunate that I was raised being like, you can do anything. If you're, you're a good person, you work in integrity, you work hard, anything is at, within your reach. And that's certainly very well said. Yeah, it definitely did. I love that sense of empowerment. And, you know, I know you mentioned him before, but your father as well, was, was he an entrepreneur himself or what was, what kind of work was he into? Well, in a way, yes. So he's a professor, but okay. he's also a very accomplished author. So, you know, in addition to teaching at class university, he's been at the same school for, you know, almost know, 50 years now, I guess, or, you know, uh, but he wrote books and that's all that is entrepreneurship because you're taking a bet totally. on yourself. Someone's going to buy my book. Um, and so much you know, time put into that. So much time. So, yeah. And so, and also like, so that was part of the, maybe part of his like career also, but I guess a side hustle where he like worked really hard at that. He would hit the conference circuit circuits and, and speak a lot. So also had that entrepreneurial spirit within him. Yeah. You have to be out there and be gregarious. So when did that, um, your, gregarious nature come out as a kid? Like, were you immediately on stage at, at three and doing performances in the living room and putting on shows and just going up to strangers? Well, yeah. Well, the fearlessness did not always serve me well because, yes, yeah. I was kicked out of dance class at the tender age of three years old. I tried to leave a revolt against the ballet teacher. Like, I'm not doing this, lady. I'm not going on my toes. Um, so I just, I always have been, and I, we always joke, one of our neighbors was trying to get like um, her doctorate or PhD, like in uh, child psychology. And they came, she was working on a study on children who are shy. 
Okay. And they came to me to do this test. And then we're like, there is no way that this is going to help you at all. So this girl's not shy. And yeah. uh, I, I just, some people are, are cut from different clouds. My husband's very quiet. And he, he's just born that way. We're just very, I, I was, it's within me. <laughs> yeah, it, it works. Okay. Uh, were you entrepreneurial at all growing up? Well, I worked, um, I, I worked with my mother a couple summers and then she like off shot me into like one of her clients that created jewelry. Oh. And I actually worked somewhat like in the back of like a sweatshop almost. So like it, 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 there were different types of experiences and maybe some of those being like, I got to work for myself. These are really long, hot days, <laughs> like in the back of the summer in the New York, putting their bees on a chain. You so the value of a dollar. I was like, I'm not going to work for somebody. Yeah. yeah. No, but it taught you that lesson though. It did hard work. Um, yeah. And I got through that summer. It was miserable, but I, I would say like my jobs were like very entrepreneurial, even early on my first job in PR, I was hired at a very big agency in New York city called Rubenstein. Mm-hmm. And they paired me with their uh, head of media relations. I know she was a very demanding job. Like we were pitching, 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 but she taught me so much um, about how to pitch a story and how to news jack, as we call it. Mm -hmm. And within a year of her leaving, I was 22 years old. She like left to go to another agency. And I went over and I went to the CEO of the company. And I said the next day, I'm like, I've been doing this for right hand. I've been a right hand woman for the past year. I know exactly her formula. I know you're looking to hire somebody, but let me have the role while you, I don't know what I was thinking, how I thought I could do this, but I did. I said, let me, let me be, don't bring in a temp. I will do her job until you find a more senior person. And they actually let me do it. I, I couldn't believe it. No, you didn't ask for any money. You're like, I want the opportunity. I, I want the opportunity. It was not about the money. It was like, I feel like I can do this. I want to do it. Like, um, and uh, it, it was a very low paying job, but like they say, you know, in, you know, in the absence of money, like the title matters and that felt, that's how it felt to me. So they gave me her job. Um, so that was pretty crazy at 22 years old. And then I went over to another agency, you know, once I had that opportunity, people, it came easier for me to get another job, but I, I guess I did have that entrepreneurial spirit. What was some of the other things that were signaling to you that you really wanted to get into PR and, and focus on that in university? Yeah. So like I said, once I started doing it, like the the seed was planted and in every aspect of my life, like I'm a very focused person. Mm -hmm. Um, Even like this summer, I decided like I'm very into fitness um, and I've been lifting heavy weights for five years and I can't do a pull up. I tell myself, Rosie, how can you not do a pull up? You're pushing 75 pounds over your head. You can't do a pull up. What do you mean? So I was like, I'm going to learn how to do a pull up. It's a And my entire focus for the summer for three months was doing pull ups. And I started in June or July, early July, actually. So I guess it was two months. Anyways. I said, by my birthday in September, I'm going to do 10 pull-ups. I got to nine. I didn't get to 10, but That's every fantastic. day, no matter what, I got on that bar. So yeah. the same thing with like career, anything else to do in my life is that one, once I decide I'm going to do something, I go all in. There is like no stopping determination. So once I knew that PR is going to be my, my field, like I loved it. And I've never been a student, by the way, yeah. ever. Like in high school, I was a C student, you know, maybe even a C minus student. Um, but I, I made a C student because I got into BU. So I was probably a C, B minus C student, but not not a world beater by any, by any stretch of imagination. You know, like our college guidance counselors applied to three schools. 
And they, but they'll push you to one they know you really want. So the other ones that they get into, but I got into BU and I was so thrilled. It was my dream school. I loved the city. I, I loved being in the city. My brother had lived in Boston and I, I wanted to be in a city, but not in New York City. And you, you grew up in New York your whole life, right? Like you, you, you grew up in the Bronx and that was like your place. And then, so leaving, you just wanted to get out of here for a bit too, right? I wanted to get out of here, but I wanted to go to a city and I chose BU because they had the communication school. I started their College of General Studies, which is like for a more remedial program that would let me trade up into the comm school. Mm-hmm. And the second I went to communication school and the second I started, you know, studying PR, I started getting A's because like what I was interested in, like I ended up graduating college with almost a 4.0 GPA because of, it was my passion. You found so, your passion. Um, and and that was really it. So like, it, I was so fortunate that I found a program that really allowed me to like have confidence. I was, I was never confident as a student. I, you know, going to BU, I went to like a private school and everybody went to Ivy League and BU was like a safety school, you know? So being able to like really, but it was so specialized that I was able to do really well. That's um, fantastic. And, and that, and that was, that really set the that, course. That we, really sets you up for success for the rest of your life then. Yeah. And but about the focus, even like graduation, like you take your finals and you have like a month before graduation, some school. So what I did is I, I got that job at Rubenstein. As soon as I done my finals that day, I left, went right back to New York. I'm like, I want to start my job. I love this. I want to do my job. And then just came back for graduation a month That's later. amazing. I'm glad that you found your passion so so early on in life. And it's obviously done you very well. And some of the research I did for this interview, you've credited your husband as an amazing partner. When did you meet him? So I met my husband the first year um, I graduated. So in 2003, I met him at the same office building I was working in. He yeah. was going in for a meeting. I, I, you should learn something about somebody for that first moment you meet them. Mm-hmm. I was leaving for the day at six o'clock and he was going into a meeting at six o'clock. I should have known that like, I was marrying somebody who was like, who took working hard very seriously too. We met in New York City. Um, it's almost like a year, not even a year after graduating and we've been together ever since. So you know. that's fantastic. So you were in New York PR, like you had worked your way up through a few different agencies and that was like Oh three to Oh six ish. Is that about right? Correct. Correct. And you started Matteo communications in like, was it Oh five? Yeah. So I started in Oh five. Um, story is I worked at Rubenstein and I went, went to work for Allison Broad PR, which is a lifestyle agency in New York city. Um, I worked on the food team. Uh, so I worked in some of the, uh, I worked in restaurant accounts, a specialty liquor, um, you know, a, a gin company, Quantro, And then um, uh, somebody I knew uh, from growing up, uh, you know, a friend of my parents had started a popcorn company called Popcorn Indiana slash Dale and Thomas Popcorn, Isaiah Thomas's popcorn company. And I brought him into the agency with me. Um, I came in, we did a pitch and they became our client. And then when I met my husband, Dan, we were dating and we got engaged in 2005. Um, I left the agency cause he had been moved out to San Francisco, actually Chicago at that point, there's been a lot of travel. Mm-hmm. And when I left the agency in 2000, late 2004, early 2005, December, January, the popcorn company they, that I brought in left with me to become right. my first agency record client. Um, and that was my first client in my consulting job. So 2005, I started my own PR firm with one client. What prompted that entrepreneurial spirit there? Was it the move? Was it the change of lifestyle? Was it like, was it, I, I want to, I can do, I know enough now to do this on my own and I feel comfortable to, to stand on my feet here. Obviously it could be a bunch of those, but like, what were some of those spark moments? I think it was a lifestyle choice. 
now that I think about it. So I could have, when I moved out to Chicago to be with my husband, I suppose I could have gotten a job at another PR agency in Chicago. It's a pretty, it's a big city. There, there are agencies. And I did some freelance work there. But because I had been living in New York, I mean, still had not been so long, but you know, when you're young, you think you've been doing things forever. I think I was tired from, of the agency world. It was exhausting. It was, we worked fashion week, late nights, weekends. And so when I was moving to Chicago, more like a little more of a low key town. I sort of wanted to embrace that lifestyle. Um, you know, you're young, you're single, you don't need to have like a huge salary at that point because you're living, you know, in a small apartment. It's just the two of you, right? Different. I think about kids, like I would maybe do things differently back then. But, um, so when I was in Chicago, I wanted to spend time with my new fiance and I was like, I'll take one client with me. I'll work from home and that'll be my career. And that's what I thought I would, I would do. And I know that there was a pivotal moment there that you're building the company, like, and you're basically a solopreneur at that point. So you're running the whole everything and you have vendors that you probably work with. There was a pivotal moment in, was it 14 that you moved to Seattle? So you guys were in Chicago for a fairly long time then, right? Yes, we were in Chicago and then we were back in New Jersey when we had our first kids, um, so we had three, one child in Chicago. Then we moved back to, to New York, New Jersey area in 2010. And we stayed in, in New York till um, late 2013. At that point, I had three moms. So we had a lot of kids very quickly. Yeah. And my husband uh, took a job out in Seattle, Washington. I'd never been there, by the way. To so talk about like entrepreneurial pioneering spirit. Like the day I went to Seattle, the day we moved. I'd never been there my whole life, but we did it. And that was the beginning. How did Matteo grow over that time? What did that look like within those intervening nine years? That's a long time. A lot happened in those nine years. So we lived in Chicago. We lived in San Francisco. We moved back to New Jersey. And at that time, my husband, actually, who had been in finance for many years, decided that he was going to have a startup, actually. Oh. So in 2010, he was in, he'd been in finance a long time. And it was really, if you thought I was taxed from being in PR trying to work the stock market. He was like dead. He was so tired. So yeah. 2011, he left to 2010, 2011, he left his job to start, have a tech startup. At that point, I actually had stopped working in, in 2010. I had two children under the age of two um, and I was a stay at home mom for like three years from 2010 to 2013. Ooh, that was my next question. I'm like, how are two entrepreneurs managing this without like an army of helpers? I was in the basement for three years with my kids. Like it, it was, I was a full stay at home mom, loved it. You know, it was, it was a great time and really took that on like, you know, with like with a lot of enthusiasm. Um, and so he had a startup, a tech startup. And um, as things go, and you have a startup, so I wasn't working, but yeah. he had a startup and he needed PR. So mom went back to work. How so in 2013, no? <laughs> uh, 2012, uh, 2012, I went to work for my husband's company. Um, I was, I, so that got me back into the workforce after being out for two and a half, three years. And so tech became um, like one of my specialties in addition to food. So um, it was, but it was still just me. I was alone. Um, just doing these, like I work for him. And then when the startup failed and we, he had to get a job and we moved out to Seattle. Um, I, at that point I had taken on another tech client and this plays into what, where we are today. It was a company called vitals.com. It was a doctor review site, um, started by someone else I knew from my network and my parents and growing up, he had founded this doctor review site. He knew because I'd worked, I had, he was an investor in the popcorn company. He knew I was talented. So they brought me on to be their, their, their PR agency. It was just me. Uh, so from 2000, um, 
2013, I had one client who moved out to Seattle. They stayed with me. He took a job and I was still a solopreneur, as you're saying. I had one or two tech clients, one or two food clients, but like it was more like, so we had extra money for the groceries. It worked for your work-life balance, I'm assuming, that you could, you know, take care of the kids, but then jump on and do stuff remotely. But, you know, it, it, you found a way to make that work for, for your lifestyle that you guys were looking for at that time. Yes, and it was also pretty fortunate we moved to, to Washington to be a, mother, a working mother, and I'll tell you why. So I'm always, I've always been an early riser, but it really works well for motherhood when you are living on the West Coast living East Coast hours. Viagra was an East Coast company. Most meet is East Coast. So yes, I would wake up very early in the morning. Like you got to be waking up at like four in the morning then, right? To hit East Coast time. That's right. I'd be at my desk at 5 a.m. My husband worked market hours. So he was also up early. So mm-hmm. I would get up at 5 a.m. I would check the emails from overnight. I'd get out my emails. So yeah. from five to seven, I would work, which was like 10 a.m. in the morning on the East Coast. I got a ton done. Then I could take my kids to school. Right. I take them to school. I'd work all day. And then when I pick them up at three o'clock, it was 6 p.m. on the East Coast. So I can have my afternoon. So living on the West Coast, yes, it was it, it was strange, like working in the dark, but it became my life and I was really able to manage both. So it was great. That time works out very well. You probably went to bed at like seven o'clock, but oh. uh, <laughs> babies go to bed, I go to bed. Yeah, especially with three kids. Uh, yeah, that's a lot. Hey, everyone. It's Brian Weber here. Just wanted to pause for a quick second and thank you all for listening and all the positive feedback and support we've received about the show. It means a great deal. I need to ask you for a small favor that won't cost anything but a minute of your time and it would mean the world to this show and our guests. Somehow, this show about the founders of the modern cannabis industry is not showing up when searching for cannabis or entrepreneur in many of the podcast platforms. That's obviously a big problem for a show about cannabis entrepreneurs. One of the things we can do to solve that is with reviews. Giving just one minute of your time to submit a review of this show, using the words cannabis and entrepreneur in it, will help us get found so we can keep sharing these amazing founders' journeys. For new listeners, I really hope you consider this after enjoying this show. For our continuing listeners, if you can do this right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. Go ahead, hit pause. I'll wait right here. Thank you. So that worked very well for you at that point. And I, and I know for you know where Maddie Communications is now, Seattle was a big deal for you. Yep. So share us that story. So we moved out to Seattle. Cannabis was really like still not, I hadn't smoked weed since college, some pop brownies, like was not part of my life in New York. It wasn't legal, was not part of the conversation at all. Moved out to Seattle and I would take my kids to school. And every day on the way back from dropping them off, I would take this road and I'd pass by a dispensary called Uncle Ike's. And it's one of the top dispensaries in Seattle. And there would be lines at 9 a.m. in the morning. I'd be like, what is going on right now? It had just gone adult use. Or we'd start going to parties and people would have a vape pen. This was like so strange to me, but it was part of the culture there. You can do this. (laughs) You can do this. So it was really, I mean, so moving to Seattle was life changing for us in many ways. Um, And when I was approached to launch other crowdfunding campaign for this cannabis cookbook, they weren't a Seattle client. They They were in Seattle company. They were based in Colorado, but just because I had this background, and I moved to Seattle, like there was something in, in, in the universe that was bringing this like to me. So that was it. And then you were starting to connect dots. Things were starting to, to pop right there. 
took on a project, which was really exciting. Like I said, Fast Company, National New York Times. It was really only a six-week project to do the launch of this crowdfunding campaign. It was very successful. That was the cookbook, right? Yeah, the cannabis cookbook. Okay. What was the name of that cookbook? Herb. It's called Herb, Mastering the Art of Cannabis Cooking from the guys who started the Stoner's Cookbook. How did you find about that project? Did you, were you approaching somebody for that or they approach you or? Someone in my network, I was doing, like I said, I was doing some consulting work in the tech space and one of them was a crowdfunding platform for cookbooks. So like I didn't only do the cannabis cookbook, I had done one about um, fashion and there's a couple, so they bring me on for these projects like to support some of these initiatives. And one of them was this cannabis cookbook and it was called Ink Shares. I think it's still around today where people can self-publish and it gets crowdfunded. So this is one of the books on their platform. They referred it to me and like I said, it was really successful and then this light bulb went off. And that was that's that why living in Seattle was such a great opportunity because once I got this little bug and it was so exciting and it was so much fun. It was a beautiful cookbook. It was really, really fun. I was like, well, you know, I'm starting, I know there's Seattle, there's a business here. So somebody I knew in Seattle knew I'd worked on this project and he was like, um, he did these tech meetups mm-hmm. and he's like, I'm starting a cannabis tech meetup. You should come. I was like, okay, great. Okay. I want to get out. I got four kids. I had four kids. At that point. I want to get out of the house. <laughs> so I started going to these cannabis tech meetups and I met, um, and I met these three guys who had just exited a company called Leafly. Oh, yes. Um, right. Cy, Scott, Brian Wanslich, and Scott Biggers had just exited Leafly to privateer holdings, which is now to right. Um, and they were starting a new startup called Headset. And like I like to say sometimes, the rest is history. I met them, we hit it off, I became their agency record. We're still with headset today. Um, and that was the beginning of the cannabis practice. That's amazing. I had signed the, one of the earlier episodes of the show. It was great, great interview with him, but that is amazing. That's how that, that started that you went to a, you went to a tech meetup and that tech background and you're just laser focused on seeing opportunities allow that to happen. So that was 2014 then. Yep. 2015 at that point, but yeah. What happened after that? So you guys live in Seattle, you got your first cannabis client, things are just like a rocket ship, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not like the rocket ship it is today, but, and also like, um, I was one person, so I could build sort of slowly because it was just me, you know? So I, um, headset became a client. Um, someone else knew, uh, by the way, this is the power of social media. I just started posting things on my Facebook page and a friend I worked with in the popcorn business said, Hey, a friend of mine is starting a cannabis tech company. You should talk to them. And I was like, okay. Um, and that became another client. And then I had two cannabis clients and I started pitching the media and I started posting things. And, you know, so I started getting invited to events to like in California and in Colorado. I was like, I'm your publicist. I'm going to go with you. And I started going to these conferences and events and started networking and started meeting more people. And, one thing led to another. And by 2016, I probably had six or seven, six clients. Okay. By 2018, I had 12 clients and I was still by myself. But it was I was going to say, I'm like, when are you adding staff at this point? How are you I'm managing not, all that? I was tired. <laughs> you, got, you have four kids yeah. and you are managing a number of clients that I'm sure are really starting to, to really go up the stream as far as media attention and traveling around and whatever yes. else. It would be very exciting, but very stressful time in my life. And when I look back on it now, I do not know how I managed 12 clients on my own. I have no idea, but I did it. 
what were some of the lessons that you learned in those early days as far as, I mean, because we had let off the interview with, you can't boost posts on social media. You can't get those paid posts out there. And, but you did mention also in the beginning that the New York Times and some of these other larger mainstream publications were very hungry to have some of this cannabis stuff because there was interest out there. But what were some of those early lessons that you learned, you know, as far as getting media placements and getting getting publicity for your, your clients and telling their story? Really good question. So th- there are a few things I would say I, uh, I learned in the early days. One, I will say that, yes, New York Times and Fast Company and Mashable all wanted to write this story, right? And it's because it was a first. And we were responsible for a lot of the first things, right? And things are very different now because, like, even headset, they were, like, the first people doing data analytics. Now there are like a bunch of others. So when I was going to Forbes and Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal pitching this cannabis data, this- This was all new. Didn't exist. So that was, that was luck, you know, lucky that I was one of the first. So like that, that put me in the right place at the right time, being one of the first people to be pitching these stories. So media clamor to what's new. So that was helpful. So it was a shiny new things. Shiny new thing. Yeah. It is not as easy this, this this day and age. Okay. Okay. That was one thing. And the other thing was, while I'm saying these companies did clamor for it, there was a lot of media that would not cover us. And so that was a challenge, but also, I guess, an opportunity. So even like when, in, when I pitched Oprah in 2015 about cannabis, it was a no. By 2016, it was a yes. So there was a lot of times like... You had to really educate media on why it was relevant to their readers. And you, I still have to do this today because mm-hmm. if there's a beautiful, great, high-quality product that I can only get in California, why should a national magazine write that story? So really trying to fit things into what they were writing about versus trying to reinvent the wheel on cannabis was something else we, that we learned. That like, okay, so I can't say that like, like if she writes about like specialty food or she writes about fashion, how can I really fit this cannabis company into her coverage versus trying to do it the other way around? So those are some of the early learnings, like trying to really work with their beats, right? And yep. and, and trying to also figure out who was the right beat. Was it wellness? Was it CPG? Was it pharma? Was it just straight up entrepreneurship? So really finding those companies I mean, those editors that would resonate with the right product because it was they were taking a risk too by writing about it. So you really have to make it relevant. Wow, that's that's a lot of lessons learned there. So you're learning this whole new vertical of, of PR, trying to grow this business, trying to be there for your current customers that you have and having your hand in raising a family as well. When was that moment that you're like, I'm, I need to dive all in on this. I need to get employees. I need to, to really ramp this up. When, when did that trigger of like enough's enough? Cause I frankly have no idea how you're doing that with a family and that many clients and, and traveling around. That is some superhuman strength right there. So this is where my husband comes into play. So I, I do talk about him a lot, you know, and, yeah. so, and he deserves it because so um, two things happened in middle of 2018 or in spring of 2018. First thing that's happening is that I'm crying every night <laughs> because I am so, I'm, I was so excited. I, I'm not, the, I'm the type of person I say yes. And then I figure it out. So that's how you get to 12 clients by yourself. I'm like, I'm just going to figure it out. And I was working really hard managing the kids. And it was a lot. I loved it. There was so much energy. And I saw, I saw that like 
I got to do this, but I was, I was actually scared at that point. Like I only knew what I knew how to do, which was pitch media. I didn't know how to run an agency. I didn't know how to hire. I didn't know. I didn't know. My husband at night said, Rosie, you have got to scale this. You need to do this. And I'm like, I can't do this. I can't. He said to me, you can. He said, imagine this scenario. And I, I, you know, with the kids, I'm working out. He's like, imagine the scenario. You wake up in the morning, get the kids off the school. You go to the gym. You do your workout, you get in your car, you drive to the city, you walk in with your Starbucks and you've got six people working there. I'm like, Dan, that will never happen. I can't do that. He's like, guess what? It happens. And how did that happen? So he, he believed in me. He said, he's like, you're, you're, you can't sustain this. this. This is not a way to live. You got to scale. Did he get your buy-in at that? Like, this is not sustainable as you're crying. <laughs> this is not sustainable. I couldn't take on another client at that point. I could not take on, maybe at that point I was nine, but in year was fall. So, but still a lot of clients by myself and like, yes, I was still getting, I was great at getting the media placements, but ask me for a status report. Who's got time for that? And I used to say to the clients, like, listen, and this is why I'm fortunate that they were all startups and I was a startup because we all did this together. I wasn't coming into a company like we work with Pureleaf now. They're like the biggest company in, in cannabis. You can come in as just a scrappy startup and like, think you can take on an account like that. So luckily you're like, we're, we're, we'll figure this out together. People. Right. I don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what you're doing, but we'll get there together. <laughs> right. That gave me a little bit of like a, a leash, a little bit of a rope, but that summer I had, I actually burned an intern. The intern happens to be the daughter of, um, of Mitch Rothschild, who's the CEO of Vitals, my, my client. I still was working Vitals too. It's like one non-capitalist client at that point. And she came home that summer from college and she was my intern. And an intern needed help. So she, her dad doesn't really know that I'm working in Canada. It's not that I was hiding from him, but like I was vital. This is my side hustle at that point. Like it didn't, wasn't relevant. So she's seeing what's happening. She's coming to meet with a, we went to after a really big new business pitch. We didn't get it in the end because it was only me and my assistant, but she's reporting back to dad, dad, you guys see what Rosie's doing. This is like crazy. Um, and at the same time, he um, went to be chairman of vital and they, they sold off part of their business to WebMD. So he was chairman and he, a serial entrepreneur, had some free time. And he's like, let's go for lunch. Let's go for breakfast. This is September 2018. And he's like, Rosie, what are you doing in this business? And I'm like, I have no idea. I, I can't run it. Same thing. I can't run a business. I can't scale a business. I just know how to do what I know how to do. He's like, but I know how to scale a business. I know how to build a business. He's like, why don't we become partners? So first one of husband, he's like, You've been working so hard. You're not giving away part of your company. I'm like, well, there's no way I'm going to be able to scale this business unless I have help. And Mitch came in as my partner in October 2018, October 18, 2018, actually, to be exact. And we formed, and I wasn't even an LLC then. It was just me, Rosie Maddio, consulting with a bank account. And he came in in October 2018, and we started our LLC. We became a real company, and we started hiring. We, our first employee started in November 2018. Um, right after Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving. Right away. Like you hired somebody right away. See, within six weeks, we had, we had we set up, we got a co-working space and we hired two employees on October. So November, 2018, I had two employees and um, they were in between like uh, us giving them the offer and them starting. I went out to MJ BizCon and that's how we went from nine to 15 clients. Because at that point I had a little more confidence that, 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 that when I get home, someone can help me with this stuff. So, I mean, still, it was sort of dumb. I, they were unknown, these two employees. Would they be any good? They're still with us today. Um, and they were great hires. And now, think about it. So we had two employees in November 
2018 and now we're 32 employees. Wow. So in like literally two years time, it has ramped up significantly. So they provided you some cash infusion, I guess, to, to cover payroll and, and then also just some mentorship on like how to, how to scale a business, how to get out of the, the solopreneur bubble and then, and then move into a more of a business model. Yeah. I mean, the, the change has been so, is, is, what a drastic change of what my life is. Back then, I only knew how to do what I knew how to do, which was be a publicist and pitch media. Two years later, I am the CEO of a company and I'm a manager. And that's not because I had an innate skill. Mitch, my partner, has been truly been a mentor, right? And has taught me like most the day-to-day stuff. Like I said, that's why I don't understand how I did what I did. Like I have no time to pitch media now. I mean, I do. There's some people that I've been working with for eight years and that call will always come for me. That email will always come for me. It makes me feel like valuable in the agency where Renee will be like, do you mind pinging X, Y, and Z? And I love that they love to hear from me. Because like I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for all these media contacts that mm-hmm. worked with me from day one. Like even these reporters, like I came up with them as well. Forget about the startups, like the media. We've been doing this together for so long. So there's still that. But over the past year that I've turned in, you know, from being a publicist to being a CEO and, and a manager. And that's been the most incredible learning experience. That's a diff- that's a lot of people struggle with taking off the hat of I am the technician, I am whatever I do as a living, and then moving into into a boss mode. And uh, yeah. one book I read was the E Myth, and it was about how you know to transfer out of you know you doing what you do well, you as a publicist into uh, in, into becoming the boss on that. Tell me about some of those adventures and some of those journeys, and maybe even some of those failures that you had along that way. Yeah, so I, so I should say the. Uh, so the first two hires, actually only one, one is still with us. The other one did not last so long. And here's why. Okay. Things that I have learned as um, even in the hiring process, because that's the hard part. In the one hand, like I was a little bit of control freak. I liked doing everything myself. On the other hand, like I needed help, right? So the questions I would ask then that I ask now is like, I just wanted an ass in a seat to part of my friends. Like we needed people, we needed a body, right? So like my vetting process then is not what it is now. I didn't know the questions to ask back then. So like, yes, some of the mistakes you made have been, you know, at least we're learning the skill, like higher, higher, slow, fire fast. Like that's a good thing to learn. I've learned that. Um, we have very little attrition as relates to, you know, employee turnover, but like we made a few mistakes and you only realize it when sometimes like a disaster happens, right? Because like they did something, they, like, they wrote an email to a client that was like selling mistakes or this and the other. And you're like, <gasps> like yeah. I allowed this to happen under my watch because my name is on the door. So I take these things very seriously. So some of the hiring mistakes we've made, you know, luckily we figured out fast. We apologize to the rest of our team for exposing to somebody who might not have been a great employee. So that's what are some of the things that you've evolved to do when you're when you're bringing on the right people? What are some of those hiring questions that have uh, evolved to find better people? There's two things I look for now and two types of questions I ask. So the first thing I've learned through all this is that at, when we first, like I said, we built this, we're building this airplane while we're flying it. Like, I'll say that. So, you know, at first, you know, I worked at agencies where some people were jacks of all trades and some people, there was like a me, like I worked for the media relations department, right? So, um the things that we've learned is that some people are good at some things, not the other things. Like we felt like we, like a lot of people, we felt like this person is a good egg, but they really cannot. And the, the clients love them. Like they're so organized, so on top of things, but they can't get a media placement. And then there's some people who are amazing getting media placements and 
with the wrong phone with the clients, I'm like, come on, be excited. Come on, like, get that email out, right? Or like, no, no, why would you ask them that question? That is not what you ask the client, right? So yeah. expecting everybody to do be good at everything, like not, not a thing, mm-hmm. not a thing. Um, so learning to, okay, we have to foster the talents of people. So maybe pairing that great media relations person with that great account person, then you've got a pop. And then you're going to get those two great people, hopefully, hopefully right. out of that. Okay. So that was a big lesson to learn. Also, I used to just be like, ask a few questions, be like, they seem good. Now, like in the main interviews would be, <laughs> I talk, we talk about Renee, you know, we love her. And one of my, is, my interview with her was like 15 minutes long. And she ended up being incredible. She's been with us, you know, two and a half years now. And now when I tell her that I spent 45 minutes, like, in the interview, she's like, I'm so jealous, you know, like, just taking the time to ask those questions, like, ask how they would deal with something, you know, what they think is a good pitch, what they're just asking the question instead of just being like, I need help, right? So just being super dialed in, like, those have been great. Also, just the way um, somebody, like, answers a question, you just start to understand, you know, what their thought process is, how they think. What their thought process is, just by the way they answer it. Like, I can I point to an example, but sometimes like, ooh, the way they said that, like, they, they really get it. How has the industry evolved and, and you guys have evolved along with it over, over the past two years? We're here as East Coast people, you know, living in, you know, the New York City area. You know, I live in New Jersey, so do you. It's going to be legal here real soon. We passed that initiative on Election Day, uh, which is phenomenal. Finally, um, how, how has that evolved? You know, like it's still a shiny new toy out here, right. but like even those two years in, in general, because you guys handle national and international stuff, how has that evolved and how have you have evolved along with that? So it's evolved in many ways. One, even though we are an industry of startups, like the talent and individuals that have come into the space over the past couple of years is, is mind blowing. Like even we work with Terrasen, which is a public company. Um, they're, uh, they're, they're going to open New Jersey. And as I mentioned them, they already have a facility and they're opening a store and their CEO as a New Jersey, New York guy, it was, uh, the founder of Fresh Direct, right? So like uh, logistics, delivery, you know, highly regulated, groceries, highly regulated. And now he is a CEO of a cannabis company. That makes a lot of sense. And somebody who's got this vast experience in the space, like you're, it's just next level, the type of people that are in space. So that's been incredible. Um, and then also just, like I said, like in the beginning, one person at Bloomberg was covering cannabis, right? Now there are three different people on different beats. It's the farmer person, it's the CPG, it's the tobacco person covering it, right? So like, while maybe there, there aren't as many shiny new objects, um, there's more media covering it. So you've got a lot of different angles to go into. Some of the companies that were not covering it at all are covering it now. So that's been great. Also, a lot of the changes have been, like you said, like East Coast, nobody was talking about it in 2014, like at all. And now like everywhere I go, like somebody's invested in cannabis or they've got a friend or a family works in cannabis. Um, and like, you can't imagine, I'm sure you got the same thing when New Jersey, you know, voted, you must've gotten a million texts, right? So like your so East Coast is like, what it felt like in the West Coast in 2018 when everything went adult use in California, that exuberance is here today. And being able to bring, I, I feel like very also like something stars are aligned where I was in the beginning on the West Coast and now I'm in the beginning on the East Coast. Um, so there is this whole new industry that's popping up, but uh, on the learnings and maybe some of the mistakes or things that have happened, you know, on the, on the East West Coast, we're learning more on the East Coast. So there's just this maturation. Um, I think it's going to serve the entire industry well. And you have a great podcast, by the way, Pot to Popular, uh, on on all the all the streaming platforms. There was one today I was listening to, and they were talking really about consumer education, and that's still a hard 
thing to do in this market. And obviously, there's some companies that are just already preaching to the choir. They're in cannabis publications. But a lot of the mainstream is still buying on like, is that a sativa or an indica and whatever else? How are you dealing with that and trying to get, um, especially for your CPG you know, customers, how are you working with them to, to, to share that story uh, for, for customers? So you, you said the magic word, education, right? So, um, you know, when we're in the weeds, not, you know, no pun intended, like we're drinking our old Kool-Aid, we're hearing the same things. We think because we're, we're talking to so many people in the same industry that people understand, you know, yeah. what cannabis is in 2020. You get into that. You get into that ecosphere that you're just talking about, and you know it. But you have to assume so many people do not, right. and they don't. So, and it's even like the editors, right? Even like they have really learned a lot because they're being pitched all the time. But we really need to go with an education first approach, being like, why should this product, especially like you're saying with CPG, why should this resonate with your with your reader? And it could be a few ways. One, like maybe it's a wellness publication. You know, they're talking to people who've got anxiety. Can we show some of like the ancillary data? Because nothing, obviously nothing is, you know, federally, um, no, no federal research being done. Like we go in, like, this is for your reader who might be dealing with this. Or if it's a fashion magazine, like doesn't that candescent box like very similar to Hermes? Like your reader who's looking for the finer things in life, if they're going to, you know, if they're drinking, you know, a beautiful bottle of rosé, maybe cannabis would be a choice for them when it comes to them. So really leading with education that resonates with what their reader is reading is, is our only way in and also using data. Um, you know, I've been, we're very fortunate to be working with headset for many years, but we can use that data to tell a story um, that really helps mainstream media, you know, grab onto because if they can show like, hey, cannabis edibles are growing at a faster rate than craft beer, like that is a story on the business side, on the consumer side. So leading with data and education to me is the only way. And you actually, you know, as you rep a data company, you actually have uh, the hard facts behind that as well, yeah. which is, uh, which is, which is really nice to have a, a direct line to that data pipe yeah, right yeah. there. So we're 2020 right now. And, you know, a lot of this is, is, is timeless, but I, I do want to have to ask, we've, we're, we've gone through this and we are going through this right now. How have you managed with your team through COVID? So um, I keep saying that the bright spot in COVID is cannabis. So, um, you know, it was early on, it was deemed as an essential business. So um, Game changer. we have been as busy as we've ever been. And I'm actually so proud of my team that, you know, we're all dealing with our own like mental health, being stuck at home and not being able to see family members and being nervous about like a global pandemic. And they've really stepped up to the plate um, in those first few weeks when COVID hit and um, everybody was stay at home orders, you know, we, you know, galvanized our clients to give back and help the message. And how are we going to, you know, we don't only do PR, we do investor relations. So how are we communicating with investors? How are we communicating with stakeholders? So we have been as busy as ever. And like I said, I'm so proud that some of this work we've done has been the most impactful. Like I always say like, great when we, you know, help a new company, you know, launch a baby pen. Awesome. Good stuff, guys. But when we're actually able to help the stakeholders or our business, like through like really transformative business times, like some people have gone from, you know, in person to delivery and um, order ahead and different times. Like this is where, this is what they pay us for, to really be there for them and get in the foxhole with them when things are going crazy. So yeah. it's been a great time for us. And we've had, you know, actually this explosive growth this year because of it. It's been deemed essential. 
the, you know, the, the needs of a cannabis company are, are, are greater than ever. Um, we're very fortunate that because of the pandemic, cannabis is deemed essential. Some of these companies are doing record sales. The, the public markets are opening up, you know, so they need, they need communication support. So, um, even this year, we went from June from 36 clients to now like 53, 54 clients in, in less than six months because it's just been a wild time for Canada. That's so amazing. And you guys have expanded your your offering space just kind of, I mean, even just quite recently of just offering just much more services. And you had mentioned a few like investor relations. What else are you guys doing right now that, to broaden that uh, approach? Yeah, so back, I wanted to answer this earlier. So how are things changed or how we like evolve our clients? So that's the exact right. So because you've been with, with some of these clients for so long, like for like headset, candescent, um, uh, Harbors, how we've been them in a really long time. So when they started with us, it was just me. We're just doing PR. We hired people. They were just media relations, PR people. But as they are growing up, they have different needs too. So some of our companies, you know, for, like Harborside, we were doing PR and then they were going public. So we knew that because we were a trusted partner with them, if we built a quality offering, they would stay with us, as opposed to like having a PR firm, NIR firm. So that's how IR came to be. So we ended up hiring um, the ex-head of investor relations for Aurora Cannabis, one of the biggest public companies in Canada. He came on board to lead our IR team. And so we have this thing with agency. If you build it, they will come. And we were very lucky. So we brought on IR just a little bit ahead of the curve before we had the clients. And over the past um, six, seven months, we now have like, I think, six public clients. Same thing with social media. You know, they, you know, they started PR, then they started, and that social media bans are, are very, very stringent. So we wanted to become experts in that. How can we help our clients navigate a scenario where everything has to be organic and clients, you know, We've been very fortunate. I don't think we really had many clients be shut down, but Instagram or Facebook does shut down accounts. How can we help them navigate it? If you build it, they will come. I think we now have eight or nine. It's very specific. I have digital marketing friends, and it's like very yeah. specific that you have to, to be through this. And it's constantly changing, too. So you have to stay on top of it. Absolutely. So as we built things, influencer, Candace now as influencer with us. We brought an influencer that was become a very big part of the industry. You can't boost posts. Some media, you know, Florida media, they're not, they're not writing about like a new com new product, but they're writing about things happening in, in the space or on the regulatory side. So how am I going to get P how am I going to get coverage for like a brand new product? Well, influencers are a great way. So we built influencer. So now we're, we have like six or seven different services, IR, PR, SEO, um, content. And as we built it, our clients have, have taken on the services. So we are growing with our clients, our service offerings as they are needing things, we are adding things. Wow, that's amazing! And you're no longer crying at night anymore. You you seem like you feel very fulfilled with what you're doing. I I, I will say this has been the and I have had four children, you know, but this has been like the six most rewarding years of my life. Um, wow. a, a lot of my personal identity has now been tied to this business. Um, Your name's on the door. My name is on the door, and I always say like the most rewarding part about it. It's not that we've had this like you know meteoric rise, you know, that we have all these clients, all these employees. That's great. That, that's awesome. The best part is, and this is an industry so different than others I've worked in, is the relationships that I have made or we have made. Some of our clients have become my closest friends and confidants and supporters and vice versa. Um, and I think it's because it's this industry of startups. We're all coming up together. And even as we're getting more sophisticated, we're doing all these firsts together, right? Like it's a very small industry still. Um, so it's, it's very tight knit and like, I keep saying that is where the magic happens. When you love the work you do, 
and you love the people you work with, like the wind is at your back. You are just, you wake up every morning in the spring in your step. And I don't know if like, and I think this is true for a, a lot of my clients that I speak to. This is not just like me being, you know, miss positivity because it's not always roses. Trust me. You have a lot of challenges. Um, but like that, I really think is like the, the special part of this industry is the relationships that we've all made. You said your, your power is, is as a connector and you get so much joy out of doing that. I love it. You found your calling for doing this. Yeah. So this has been an amazing founder's journey. I love how all these things kind of come along and you, you found your inspiration, you found your passion, you found your mentor uh, along the way and then a partner. And now that we're in 2020 and then beyond, where do you see growing, you know, Matteo in, in the future? Yeah. So um, a few things will always remain the same, which is that while we are deeply rooted in cannabis, um, the mainstream media and placements will always be our ethos, right? Like we would not be where we are today if we were only pitching the cannabis trades, right? Like we always have to take this mainstream approach. So um, that will always remain the same. But I, I believe that growth will become um, more clients do more of our services. So everyone comes in with PR. There's nobody in our organization that just does social media. They all come in through PR because that's where we really made our name. So um, a growth for us is, you know, clients taking on more services with us. Um, growth is obviously um, bringing on more clients. Right now we have three offices. So that's going to grow this year. I mean, offices is in an office, but we now have an LA team. We now have a Toronto team. And obviously we're in New York. So growth for us is adding more people to each of the offices and really growing out, you know, those outposts, uh, mm-hmm. that's growth for us. Um, and, and just really making sure that we are bringing in like the, for me, it is really having these, like the, the best, um, the best clients in the space. So what does the best mean to me? Uh, best means obviously I want to make sure that the people we work with, um, have the same morals and integrity that we do. Um, you just get a sense of people and we just want to work with people who are just doing the right things. Um, clients that have great balance sheets, you know, who are like, you know, are, you know, walking the walk, not just talking the talk, because we want to be able to, you know, pitch companies that have substance. Um, but really, it's more people, more clients, more services. That, that's really what growth for Maddie looks like. That early lesson of like hiring the right people and hiring for that cultural fit and those values is, is so huge to be able to, to build that for what you want to do. So um, congratulations on all that. Culture is huge for us. And this is actually the second most gratifying part, or maybe it's even the first of, above those, like, you know, investing in your relationships is that nothing makes me happier than when I'm on Instagram and I follow a lot of the, my, you know, my employees and when I see that they're out together on a Saturday night. I remember being out, you know, making fun of my boss too when I was 25 years old. But that makes me so happy that they love each other. They want to be together. Um, and I will say, like, culturally, and I've worked at other agencies, I've never met a team that is less cutthroat than ours as it relates to like what happens internally. Like they'll fight tooth and nail for, uh, for, for their clients, um, you know, with media just to get it done. But like the collaborative nature, like New York times ran yesterday with three of our clients and no one's territorial, mm-hmm. a rising tide lifts all ships. And, um, you know, that collaborative nature is like something truly special, something I'm super proud of. That's awesome. Uh, well, the best of success to you guys, and you've, you've de- definitely built a strong foundation. From my relationship and working with you guys and, and getting guests for the show, it's been phenomenal. So uh, every every single touch point along the way. So I really appreciate me being able to share their stories very well. I have a few closing questions for you, uh, and I appreciate your time today. This is a weird one, but 
What do you need or what are you trying to attract from the universe right now? Is there anything that's pressing now, November, November 2020, that you're just like, what could I use from the universe? You know, this, I think, is classic for many entrepreneurs. I want for the universe not to have the shoe drop. Okay. okay? Like, I, I, I wake up every morning with gratitude for, like, the career and the life that, that I have right now. And I don't want that to end. So I'm hoping that the universe will hear my voice when I say, I'm trying my hardest. We're working our hardest. We're trying to do the right things, be good people. I hope they hear that and continue to bless our agency, you know, for, uh, you know, for the next couple of years. Like I, I just, I don't, this has just been, like I said, the most exciting, rewarding part of my life. I don't want it to end. The party is great. <laughs> Amen to that. I like that. Who are any cannabis or non-cannabis founders that uh, either you admire or inspire you and, and why? So it's hard. I hate to choose a favorite child, but you know, I'll pick just two that came off the top of my head the second you asked that. Um, one of them is Emily Paxia. She is um, uh, the co-founder of Poseidon Asset Management, which is a venture capital a private equity firm in the cannabis space. She is a fearless female pioneer. She has been investing in cannabis since 2012, 2013. So she took a bet. She, you know, was a consultant, I think at Boston Consulting Group, one of those like really, really like, um, you know, professional, successful person. And she took a bet on the industry, made early bets in some of these cannabis companies to become one of the most prolific investors in the space of a female pioneer and just a really good person. Like she's just like very humble, so wicked smart. I totally look up to her. She's a dear friend of mine. The other one is also a, a client of ours. Um, his name is Jason Wild. He's the founder of JW Asset Management and the chairman of the board of TerraSend. Um, and he, they've been a client for over a year and he's just become a really dear friend. And the thing I admire most about him is he is like an integrity first person. Um, you know, like it, it's very rare when you just, you know, you meet somebody and you know that they, they just do everything so just so ethical, right? And like in Judaism, they call him a mensch, like just a good person. He's been so wildly successful in his career. He exited like his pharma company for a couple billion dollars a few years ago, right? He, you know, he's been building this company and he's just um, an integrity first person. And I really admire that because no matter how successful he's been, he just is a very human person. And I hope as we, you know, continue to be successful that like we have humility um, and that we realize that we don't do this alone. And when you invest in people and, and you help people and are a good person, like that is really the thing you should be the most proud of. You shared a lot of great knowledge through throughout this, you know, this episode and your founder's journey. For somebody looking to come into the cannabis industry right now, what is a piece of advice that you think would be very important for for them to 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 know? Um, so there's two things. One is, and I was on a panel the other day, we we're talking about this and it really rung to me is that we are still so early. Okay. And there's still so much opportunity in this space. I remember, um, in 2016, I went to a women, a woman grow event, um, in, 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 in Colorado and there was like another female like marketing PR founder and she's telling me about all these clients and how much she's charging them. And I, at that point I had two clients or three clients by myself. And I remember calling my husband crying being like, I'm a hack. I, I'm never, I'm never, I'm never going to do this. Like, I mean, I'm, it's too late. Like this girl, she's cornered the market. That same year I was at MJ BizCon, another like big PR agency person starting his own firm. And I was like, Dan, like it's over. Like I thought I was going to do something here. It's not. Well, two things. One, we are 
way bigger than an agency ever would be now, right? And we acquired the, the agency uh, of the guy that I'd seen, you know, in, in, in Vegas. So you cannot let fear or FOMO dictate di- dictate in this industry. It is still so early. There's so much opportunity. If you just work hard, you're fearless and just dive in and just use your skill set and work hard, there's so much opportunity. Like other PR people, come on in. There are so many clients to be had. There are so much colleagueship. Like it is still so early, still early innings. Go for it because this is a great industry. That's awesome. Well, for those who 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 might be interested in uh, either working with you or working for you, what are some of the best ways that people can connect with with you and, and Matteo Communications? Well, we are hiring, so please feel free to email careers at Matteo.com with your resume. Um, uh, we're hiring for PR and influencer right now and content. But um, if you want to connect with me, I'm very very active on LinkedIn. Look me up on LinkedIn to connect with me. Um, rosie at madio.com. I answer and see every email I get. So please feel free to reach out to me. And our website is madio.com to get a lot of information about our clients, our services, and our team. That's fantastic. And don't forget your uh, your amazing podcast, Pop to Popular. Oh, yeah. Check out Pop to Popular. That's right. Leave a rating. <laughs> <laughs> always want to always want to promote the fellow podcaster uh rosie it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show to, to share your founder's journey which has been such an amazing arc and it's just gonna hockey stick from here i really believe um i love working with you guys and uh and i just wanted to share that story and i really appreciate it thank you so much for having me and thank you for supporting our agency our clients like this is such a high quality podcast i can't wait for it to come out and um our clients love being on it too. So it's been great partnering with you. And thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for listening to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a Lit Up media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was produced by Anthony Margola, edited by Brian Weber and Anthony Margola, theme music by Justin Cruz of Cruise Control Music. Links from today's episodes are available in our show notes. If you received any value from our show, please take a second and leave a review in iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. It really helps. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at litupfounders, and on LinkedIn at litupmedia. Finally, our email address is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for listening and sharing the journey.